The United States has been intervening in Afghanistan since 1979. Trump and now Joe Biden promised to end U.S. involvement in what is described as the United States' longest war. But they plan to continue imperialist domination over the country and the peoples of Afghanistan. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can only do this show with your support. Today is the first of a two-part episode that we're doing on the U.S. war in and against Afghanistan. Discussed in the media these days is whether the war is ending, but few people outside of Afghanistan know how the war really started. It didn't actually begin in 2001, but rather in 1978. Today, the Biden administration is putting extreme pressure on the U.S.-backed government in Afghanistan to support the creation of a government of national unity with the Taliban. As Donald Trump appeared to be preparing for a final end of the U.S. military intervention in Afghanistan through a negotiated settlement with the Taliban, the new administration in the White House, the Biden White House, appears to be pursuing more or less the same path. This is a clear indication that the policy in Afghanistan is being driven not by the Republican Party leadership or by the Democratic Party leadership, but rather by the Pentagon and the larger U.S. foreign policy and military establishment. The U.S. did invade Afghanistan in 2001. On October 7th, just about four weeks following the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack that destroyed the World Trade Center in New York and a big part of the building of the Pentagon here in Washington, D.C., the U.S. sent thousands of military forces to disperse the Taliban government. And that happened within days. The Bush administration announced in 2001 that it was Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda that was responsible for the September 11, 2001 attacks. Bin Laden had been given refuge or sanctuary by the Taliban government in Afghanistan. The Taliban were a right-wing, religious, fundamentalist party that had taken power in Afghanistan in the mid-1990s. The United States has actually been at war or engaged in war in Afghanistan since 1978. A communist party called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or PDPA, took power in Afghanistan in April 1978. The government that it toppled was led by Mohammad Daud Khan, 
who had also carried out a coup d'etat deposing Afghanistan's last king in 1973. The government of Mohammad Daoud Khan had maintained friendly relations with the Soviet Union, which shares a very long border with Afghanistan. When the socialist government eventually took power in 1978, it began by enacting far-reaching reforms, including literacy programs, land reform, educational reforms that facilitated girls attending schools throughout the country, including in the countryside. In opposition to the government's secular reform policy, right-wing feudalistic and pro-feudal forces in Afghanistan's countryside began an armed opposition to the government. These reactionary feudal or pro-feudal forces were supported by what became known as the Mujahideen. Osama bin Laden and other right-wing forces began an international campaign to recruit jihadi fighters and raise tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to support the armed insurrection against the socialist government in Afghanistan. Behind the scenes, the United States Central Intelligence Agency and the Pentagon helped coordinate the effort to support the Mujahideen. In fact, this was the largest CIA covert operation that had existed up until that time. Again, we're talking about 1978, 1979, 1980, and into the early 1980s. The People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the socialist party that led the government, was beset by factional infighting between two large factions. One was called the Parcham faction, or flag or banner faction, and the other was called the Kalk, or Kalk faction, meaning masses or people. We are going to talk about the U.S. 40-year-long war in Afghanistan in this, a two-part series of the Real Story episode of the Socialist Program. The first part will deal with what happened at the time of the creation of a socialist government in 1978 and the events surrounding it in the mid-1970s. We will explore how U.S. imperialism became directly involved in this massive covert operation. We will also discuss the role of the Soviet Union in 1979 and how it changed once Mikhail Gorbachev became the primary leader of the Soviet Union In the mid 1980s, we will also discuss the global context, the politics of the late 1970s and early 1980s, and how that shaped the struggle inside of Afghanistan. In our next episode, the second episode on this topic, we will focus primarily on why the US actually went to war in Afghanistan in 2001, how and why it was militarily defeated and the new strategic orientation of the Pentagon, meaning both during the Trump era and now during the Biden White House, aiming towards the creation of a government of national unity with the Taliban playing a principal or decisive role. We are joined by Sorab Eslami. He is a doctoral student at Syracuse University in the Department of Geography and the Environment. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. So, Rob, your family is from Afghanistan. You have long familial roots there. 
you're part of the diaspora, you're part of a community of people who have been dispersed, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And the United States has been engaged openly, actively, and covertly in Afghanistan since 1979. The triggering event for this intervention was not the Soviet intervention, military intervention or invasion in Afghanistan, which took place in December 1979. The American intervention actually began in 1978 following a revolution that brought a socialist party to government in Afghanistan. Just talk about how this all began. So the Sour Revolution, which brought the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan to power in 1978, was really a culmination of decades of political organizing and ferment, principally by leftist organizations in Afghanistan. Because of this organizing that you saw sort of some progressive changes, even during the presidency of Daoud Khan who took power after a coup d'etat against his cousin, who was the last king of Afghanistan, King Zoe Shah. So, Rob, when was that? That was in 1973. That's correct. So let's just go through the timeline for people. So 1973, a coup takes place. It's a progressive coup. It's a military coup. It's against the last king. And that government lasts until 1978, five years. So at first, the coup that takes place in 1973 is basically an alliance by the leader of the coup and the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, a socialist party, a Marxist party. But in 1978, there's a second revolution, and that's led by the PDPA. Let's just pick it up right there. Like that government comes into office. Now Afghanistan, which shares this huge border with the Soviet Union, not to mention other countries, has a socialist government. And while the previous government also had good relations with the Soviet Union, this government is proposing far-reaching reforms in Afghanistan. And immediately that triggers a pro-feudal or semi-feudal right-wing, reactionary opposition. And before anything is able to actually start, or certainly very early in the process, the American CIA comes in, the American military covertly comes in to aid the uprising against the new government, the Saar Revolution government, not because it's really threatening America, but it's aligned with the Soviet Union. I mean, is that about it? Yeah, that's right. And in fact, the mobilization of these far-right ultra-reactionary forces that would later become the Mujahideen actually began during the time of President Daoud Khan, who, because of the leftist organizers that had received government positions uh, under, under Daoud Khan, who had fought for, even during that time, certain progressive changes that were expanded upon after the Saudi Revolution when the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, took power. For instance, one of the reforms enacted by these leftists in power during the time of Daoud Khan was the creation of these family clinics in rural areas that provided contraceptives and reproductive education to women in rural areas. This, of course, was expanded later on. But it was also because of these leftists in government that the Soviet Union, who had long had a relationship with Afghanistan, even during the time of the King Zahir Shah, 
for various development projects in the country, infrastructural projects. It was because of this close relationship, even during the time of Dawud Khan, that you see these Mujahideen, these sort of ultra-right reactionary forces mobilizing in Pakistan. Again, it was these ultra-right reactionary forces that were provided covert assistance prior to the intervention of the Soviet Union in 1979. You know, this is well documented. Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski, the national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter, famously said that he wanted to create a Vietnam for the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And, you know, while the Stinger missiles that famously are sort of attributed to the success of the Mujahideen against the Soviet army in the 1980s, while those took place under the Reagan administration, the sort of distribution of these Stinger missiles, there were still significant financial and military support to these bands of, as I said, reactionary forces in Pakistan during the time of Daoud Khan and, as you said, before the events of the Soviet intervention in 1979. Right. So Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter and really helped begin what later became known as the Reagan era, I mean, the cancellation of arms agreements with the Soviet Union, the remilitarization or accelerated militarization of the United States, a very aggressive foreign policy. These were all things advocated by Zbigniew Brzezinski. In an interview with the French newspaper in 1998, Brzezinski said, quote, according to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980. That is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan on December 24th, 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was on July 3rd, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that, in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. Asked by the interviewer if he now regretted anything, because obviously the U.S. was supporting the Mujahideen. Again, Osama bin Laden was one of the principal spokespersons and fundraisers for that. Brzezinski replies, regret what? The secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? So clearly, the cynicism of the Carter administration foreign policy aiding this reactionary, feudalist, Mujahideen so-called insurrection against the new socialist government was precisely designed to draw in the Soviet Union to come to its allies in the PDPA. And then the United States told the world that the U.S. is coming to support the freedom fighters who constituted the Mujahideen who were fighting against the Soviet empire, or it can't function in a more cynical way. That's right. And I think that a lot of what we understand in Afghanistan also can't be looked at in isolation from what was happening elsewhere in the world at that time. I mean, in a lot of ways, what we saw in Afghanistan was a sort of similar national liberation, revolutionary struggle that we saw elsewhere in the world, in South America, in Africa, and so on. And, you know, the Afghans themselves very much knew this. By the Afghans, you're talking about the PDPA, the socialists. Yes, that's right. 
Those within the PDPA, for example, President Babrak Karmal, who was the third president of the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, in an interview with English reporters and journalists, kept insisting when they tried to sort of get him to admit that he was just this stooge or puppet of the Soviet Union, which is an often trotted out line about the PDPA in Afghanistan, which I think, you know, is wrong in so many different ways. But, you know, Karmal, the president, insisted on Afghanistan being a non-aligned country, which, as we know from, you know, the political analysis, Samir Amin, didn't mean necessarily that Afghanistan was neither with the US nor with Soviet Union, as is commonly thought about non-aligned countries, but that Afghanistan was a part of this sort of global movement beginning from the 1950s, this non-aligned movement to stand against the globalization of capitalism in the late 20th century, and in particular, the rise of American imperial hegemony in the post-World War II era. So I think that in order to really understand that particular history of U.S. involvement, even prior to Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, we also have to sort of understand the developments of Afghanistan within this context of the rise of the so-called socialist camp, particularly in the global south in the world, and also this sort of broader sense of solidarity between national liberation struggles in the global south. The Department of Defense, the Pentagon, publishes something called a country study book on all countries, in fact. And the books are, you know, useful. They contain useful information. They're designed really for U.S. government employees, not for the broad public. It's not really propaganda like, say, CBS, NBC, CNN, and the so-called free press. These are country study books developed by the Pentagon so that Pentagon officials can actually have a true, not a propagandized version of what's going on. And in 1986, they published a country study book on Afghanistan. And it's pretty interesting because it admits something that the American people were not told. And in fact, it's the opposite of what the American people were actually told. Here's what the Department of Defense book says, quote, when the PDPA took power, it quickly moved to remove both land ownership inequalities and usury. It also goes on to say it canceled mortgage debts of agricultural laborers and small landowners. The PDPA, it says, set up extensive literacy programs, especially for women, and printed textbooks in the many different languages spoken by the different parts or peoples in Afghanistan. The book goes on to say, again, everyone, this is the Pentagon in 1986, at the same time that it was supporting and giving aid along with the CIA to the Mujahideen, the Osama bin Laden-led counter-revolutionary feudalists. This book says, quote, the government, again, this is the socialist government, quote, trained many more teachers, built additional schools and kindergartens, and instituted nurseries for orphans. Among one of its first decrees of the revolution, the book cites, was the decision to prohibit bride price and to give women freedom of choice in marriage. So, Rob, at the very moment the U.S. was declaring the Mujahideen, the feudalists, to be freedom fighters because they were fighting against the socialist government, which was aligned with the Soviet Union, internally the Pentagon was telling its own people this is what the government's doing, and the things that the government was doing would be considered to be progress. Anyway, let's get your thoughts. 
Right. And how dare those people of Afghanistan pursue these progressive reforms and how dare they seek the Soviet Union's aid in pursuing them against the wishes of imperialist machinations of the United States. All of those reforms that you mentioned were of such supreme importance to a country like Afghanistan, which by the time the coup by Daoud Khan overthrew the monarchy of Zahir Shah, Afghanistan was, to use sort of an outdated expression, this thoroughly backward country, a country in which you had perhaps in Kabul or in a few urban centers, you know, a degree of development, but in the countryside, there was a very little access to electricity, little access to a decent education. You know, there was, as you said, this complete feudal relations that mutated into various new relations today in Afghanistan since the rise of the Mujahideen and then later the Taliban in the 1990s. So these reforms were of incredible importance to the country. And it was because of these reforms that you saw an entire new generation of educated, empowered people in the country come about. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, growing up in a diaspora community, you come to realize that there have been waves, successive waves of flight from Afghanistan, generational flight from Afghanistan. And the first being when the monarchy of uh, Zahir Shah was overthrown, you had an entire generation or sort of population in Afghanistan of those who were supporters of the king leave the country. When Daoud Khan was overthrown, when the presidency of Daoud Khan was overthrown by the Saudi revolution, you had sort of a population that were supporters of Daoud Khan leave the country. When then the Sahar Revolution, the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, later the Republic of Afghanistan, was sort of undone, you know, in part through the prolonged and protracted war, and then the rise of the Mujahideen who took power from the final socialist president of Afghanistan, Dr. Najibullah, you see another generation, another population from Afghanistan leave. And so what you were left with then was a country deprived of people who had technical knowledge, people who had a certain amount of education and skills that could have worked towards developing the country even further. And I think that this question of how Afghanistan was developing or was moving towards progressive development is something that still we don't know so much about, principally because there is so much to the narrative that Afghanistan was merely stagnating, that the people were discontented with the changes that were carried out under the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. This is still a prevailing narrative, and there is still a lot more work to be done to really examine truthfully and genuinely what took place under the socialist government of Afghanistan. One more thing I might add is that in addition to these mass literacy campaigns, in addition to the supporting of peasant cooperatives, the legalization of trade unions in Afghanistan, the rollout of these incredible programs to empower women in particular, led by women in government during the time of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. You know, one woman leader that comes to mind is Anaita Ratibzad, who was one of the first female physicians in Afghanistan a long-time Marxist and revolutionary in the country who fought very hard for the empowerment of women in Afghanistan, not only during the time of the socialist government, but prior to that, during the time of Daoud Khan. In addition to all these reforms, you had a great deal of cultural flourishing in Afghanistan. I mean, for the first time during the time of the socialist government in Afghanistan, you see this real direct government support for the arts of the people. 
in the country. Musical traditions, forms of poetry that were never really profiled on the radio or television prior to the socialist government, these received a great deal of support by the socialist government in the 1980s, which means a lot to the people of Afghanistan. The culture of the people of Afghanistan is a, a long, enduring, complex, but long, enduring thing that means a great deal. So not only were there these material progressive changes in the country, but a great deal of cultural expression and flourishing as well. These are very, very, very important points, Sarab. Again, for our listeners, back in 1978, the Saar Revolution takes place, a socialist government comes to power the U.S. CIA and Defense Department, the Carter administration, certainly under the direction of Zbigniew Brzezinski, but others as well, begin CIA support for an armed uprising by the feudalists who are trying to stop the reforms that allow girls to go to school in the countryside, that engage in mass literacy, that send teachers to the countryside. Thousands of teachers, by the way, when they came to these villages, were assassinated by the Mujahideen who America was supporting. So the United States is actually in bed with the feudalists who are denying workers, peasants, women, different minority peoples, actual rights, a progressive reform. And the U.S. is doing this because the government is socialist and because the government is aligned with the Soviet Union. Just remember this, everyone, because Osama bin Laden who the United States declares war against following the September 11, 2001 attacks, and even prior to it, and who had been residing in Afghanistan after the Taliban come to power once the socialist government not only has left office, but the leaders of that socialist government are slaughtered by the Taliban when they come to power in the mid-1990s. But the United States is supporting the extreme right-wing elements, the feudalist elements in Afghanistan. Just remember that. And again, Osama bin Laden, who we all were told is America's arch enemy, at that time he was an American hero. The CBS show 60 Minutes had a one hour long special on Afghanistan. I want to play just a 15 second audio clip. It's from Dan Rather. This is how the American people were told about the character, the nature of the Mujahideen. Again, under at least partly the leadership of Osama bin Laden. Let's listen. We were smuggled into Afghanistan by a young Mujahideen. Mujahideen, the Muslim word for freedom fighter or fighter in a holy war. In this case, as the Mujahideen see it, a holy war against the Soviets. A war, they say, that if they get weapons from us or anyone else in the free world, they will win. So, Rob, it's the free world against a government in Afghanistan that's trying to bring basic freedoms to the people in Afghanistan, especially the poor. Exactly. That quote makes me think of Rambo 4, where you have the story take place in Afghanistan. And, you know, in the credits of the film, it's dedicated to the brave Mujahideen of Afghanistan. Of course, later when it became known what the Mujahideen would become, later retroactively, that was cut from the movie. Also, it was at this time that during the Reagan administration, these brave freedom fighters were invited to the White House, where they almost had a sort of a press tour in America. So what would become very odious reactionary forces in Afghanistan, 
that were basically bringing Afghanistan to conditions worse than even one might argue during the time of the king. These were the people that were upheld by America as sort of the those who were going to bring real freedom to the country instead of those who were actually building that freedom in material terms. In other words, the leftists and the government officials of the People Democratic Party of Afghanistan. John Miller, who was an ABC reporter, got an opportunity to interview Osama bin Laden in 1998. Again, the Taliban were now the government in Afghanistan. The Soviets had left in 1989. They were not defeated, by the way. You know, Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen said the Soviets and the socialist government were crushed. But no, Gorbachev decided to leave Afghanistan. It was part of a new reorientation of Soviet foreign policy. I mean, the Soviets, by the way, just to digress for a moment, had always, I think, had mixed feelings about whether it was correct and the right thing to intervene. Leonid Brezhnev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at the time of the Soviet intervention in December 79, had prior had discussions with the leaders in the PDPA who felt under siege because of the CIA funded and organized and armed insurrection by the Mujahideen. Brezhnev at first was like, no, let's not do this. This is going to be a mistake. It was very unlike Soviet foreign policy to go into a place like Afghanistan. Yes, the Soviets had intervened in Hungary in 1956 and in Czechoslovakia in 1968, but those were Warsaw Pact countries at a time when there was a big division within those governments. Moving into Afghanistan was something quite different. And there was concern on the part of the Soviet leadership. And I know there was concern also on the part of the Cuban leadership, which was aligned with the Soviet Union, about whether it was going to be a tactical or strategic blunder to move in, even though justice was on the side of the Afghan government. That was my digression. But that aside, the U.S. media, even as late as 1998, again, this was three years before the September 11th attacks. And the U.S. blamed al-Qaeda led by Osama bin Laden, and certainly they appeared to have taken responsibility for it. But John Miller goes to Afghanistan, and he interviews Osama bin Laden, and here's his final question. It's not even a question. It's just a statement. In America, we have a figure from history from 1897 named Teddy Roosevelt. He was a wealthy man who grew up in a privileged situation and who fought on the front lines. He put together his own men, hand chose them, and went into battle. You are like the Middle East version of Teddy Roosevelt. And I'm thinking like, wow. Even then, as the United States is moving away from the Mujahideen and obviously considers Osama bin Laden an adversary, there was so much goodwill towards him that an American reporter from a mainstream, one of the three top networks, ABC, could be talking to Osama bin Laden like that. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning as well that, of course, it was the CIA that brought Osama bin Laden and his cohort, in addition to these Islamic fundamentalists from various parts of the Arab world and their counterparts in Pakistan. It was the CIA who trained and funded these same individuals who would later become the faces of the terrorist group Al-Qaeda, who would later haunt like a boogeyman the United States and the public imaginary in the United States during this era of the war, so-called war on terror in the post-9-11 
era, the whole construct of Al-Qaeda, of these various terrorist networks, can be directly linked back to U.S. involvement and support for organizations in Afghanistan. But there was one point that I wanted to touch on, which you had brought up regarding Soviet intervention in Afghanistan. I think it's important to kind of clarify this history a little bit because it's so misunderstood. Even to this day, we don't really have a very good understanding. And certainly if you talk to scholars or academics about this history, many of them being American scholars who basically support the entire often repeated line that it was the Soviet Union wanting to extend their control or their their hands, their proverbial bear claw of the Soviet Union over Afghanistan. You know, the Soviet Union intervened in Afghanistan at the behest of self-exiled members of this coalition between two leftist parties in Afghanistan because there were real and legitimate fears that the then president, Hafizullah Amin, who had enacted a great deal of repression against opponents to his regime in Afghanistan, there was a great deal of concern that he was going to basically undo the important changes that had been enacted under the PDPA. And you know now we actually have evidence to support this concern in release cables that indicate the United States was in some level of communication with Hafizullah Amin. So there was a real concern with all that had been achieved by the Sour Revolution until that point being completely undone, which is why these self-exiled revolutionaries, socialists requested that the Soviet Union help to intervene in Afghanistan. There's a very excellent book by the journalist named Philip Bonowski. It's called Afghanistan, Washington's Secret War, that really goes into the history principally of U.S. involvement prior to the Soviet intervention and after. But that also goes into a little bit about this sort of longer history of sort of covert American operations in Afghanistan. Even prior to the Sour Revolution, there's a real history of American academics in some cases. One academic in particular comes to mind, his name is Louis Dupree, who was actually deported from Afghanistan after the Sour Revolution for being an agent of the CIA. So there is a long history of covert operations to try and sway political developments in Afghanistan that even extend before the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan took power. And it is because of that history and real concern for any change in that direction that we understand the Soviet intervention today. Well, let's just stop for a minute. I want to explore this a little bit more, the untold part of the story. So again, the PDPA, the Socialist Party, Communist Party comes to power in 1978, but the party actually has at least two different primary wings. The initial government is led by Nur Mohammed Taraki, and that government is in consultation with, and certainly in a political and military alliance with the Soviet Union. And that government is then toppled because of an intra party struggle. And that's when Amin, who you're just referring to, comes into power. And the Soviets intervene in December 1979. And there is a battle, and presumably it's with Soviet forces or the part of the PDPA aligned with the Soviet. And Amin himself, the second leader now of the new socialist government, he is also killed and a new government comes to take its power. So there's division between the different wings within the Socialist Party, 
which let's just talk about what actually existed and then a little bit more in terms of how it becomes a factor in terms of imperialist intervention, because we could see six years before that in Grenada, where the U.S. also intervened and toppled a progressive socialist government, there were divisions within the party, within different factions of the party that in some ways opened the door for foreign intervention. That's right. And I think it's because of those taking advantage of those divisions that U.S. imperialism in Afghanistan was able to take a firm hold. And it was actually because of efforts to take advantage of those divisions within the coalition that sort of comprised the socialist government, as you said, between these two prevailing factions, that the Soviet Union had cause to believe that what was achieved by the Sour Revolution was in a certain degree of danger of failing. So like I mentioned, the socialist government didn't emerge spontaneously. It was the culmination of decades of organizing by leftists, by revolutionaries, by Marxists in Afghanistan. And of course, as is the case in similar country throughout the global south, it is you know, riven with its own contradictions, with its own challenges. There, for instance, was a split even in the 1950s and 1960s between Marxist-Leninist parties and Maoist parties over where the area of organizing ought to take place in rural areas or urban areas. So these debates and contests, you know, there's a great deal of complexity and nuance to these debates that, again, we still don't know much about that history in Afghanistan, and there still remains a lot of work to be done to research that. But these parties formed in various ways, taking advantage of various opportunities to get involved in the government, for example, under President Daoud Khan. And the two sort of factions, the two sort of leftist factions that emerged were, as you mentioned, the two sort of factions that formed the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. They were respectively the Khalq faction and the Parchami faction. Khalq meaning people, Parcham meaning flag. And it was, of course, the Khalq faction that had come to power under the first president of the socialist government, Nur Muhammad Taraki, and then also was the faction represented by the second president, Hafizullah Amin. After Hafizullah Amin was deposed and later executed, it was the Parchami faction that then took hold of power in the government, who, as opposed to the Khalq faction, had a slightly tempered policy towards social change and progressive reforms in the country. It was their belief, for instance, that radical change couldn't take place in a country like Afghanistan so rapidly that there had to be some sort of measure of pace. And of course, this would then be altered even further by the time President Dr. Najibullah took power and effectively pursued reforms similar to that of Gorbachev and the Soviet Union, dulling in many ways the sort of progressive edge and even revolutionary edge of the socialist government at the time. And there are many people who attribute the fall of the socialist government in Afghanistan to these sort of rein back reforms of President Dr. Najibullah, again, mirroring what we saw take place in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev. So just to clarify again for our audience, so the Parcham faction, which comes to power after the Soviets come into the country starting in December 79, their basic policy is let's slow down because perhaps the literacy programs, the education programs, the trade union programs, the land reform programs are 
colliding with resistance from the feudal-led opposition, which again is supported by the CIA, the feudalists have a lot of power in the village. They have a lot of power in the countryside. Patriarchal village relations have a big impact even on the consciousness of poor peasants who would be the direct beneficiaries from the reforms. So this wing of the PDPA says, let's slow down. Perhaps we can temper or minimize the hold that the feudal opposition has over parts of the countryside by not confronting tradition as dramatically and drastically as the first set of reforms did. So that's a normal kind of political battle that takes place. How fast do you go when you're facing reaction? Do you slow down or do you speed up? This is about the tempo of change at a time when the tempo of change is being challenged by right-wingers. I mean, in the civil rights movement in the United States, where the racist apartheid state was so powerful in the southern states, there were arguments made by some tendencies within the civil rights movement that Martin Luther King was going too fast, that the idea that there could be a complete abolition of Jim Crow laws all at once was too fast because they were going to collide with the entrenched forces of reaction. Again, that policy or that orientation gave way because the masses of people came into the streets, demanded change. But this question about the tempo of reform, how fast or how slow in the face of opposition, that's a debate that is replicated everywhere where progressives are trying to challenge entrenched forces of reaction. Right. You know, it's also something that didn't take place sort of instinctively in Afghanistan. It was a complex debate. It was a robust and colorful, vibrant debate that was taking place during the time of the socialist government. And even prior to that, out in the streets, you know, there's a real history, something that we don't really see anymore today in Afghanistan. But there was a real history of public intellectuals, of leftist organizers, of trade unionists, and so on, who would take to the streets and engage in these public speeches and public debates. And that's to say nothing of these sort of internal debates that were going on within these various organizations and parties in Afghanistan at the time. Again, the problem is, is that we know so little about that debate and discourse now There still remains a lot of work to be done to look more closely at that. But the point of raising all of this is to demonstrate how these very natural, as you say, these almost universal discussions and debates around the tempo of change and how revolutionary action ought to take place, these dissenting opinions and in some cases, very fierce opposition to differing perspectives in this debate were completely taken advantage of by the U.S. government in their covert operations in Afghanistan. As we saw elsewhere in the world, why, again, I think it's so important to understand the recent history of Afghanistan, not in isolation from what was taking place with socialist governments and movements and struggles for national liberation elsewhere in the world. So, Rob, let's talk about what else was happening, because you're making the point that, one, while we look at the dynamics of what's going on in Afghanistan, a very unique situation, a very distinctively different country with a different history and a complex set of social relations where outside of Kabul and some of the other big cities, the level of sort of ossification or frozen social relations is so pronounced. I mean, where parts of Afghanistan are living in 
1978 and parts of Afghanistan are living in what might have looked very similar to what it looked like a thousand years earlier. So a distinctive and complex country. But at the same time, 1978, there is a global movement for social change. And it's as a consequence, at least partly, of what appeared to be the diminishing influence of American imperialism. So the United States loses the war in Vietnam and his U.S. military forces leave in 73 and the Vietnamese reclaim the entire country in 1975. The U.S. loses the war and the communist parties take control in Laos and Cambodia. And then in 1974, there's a revolution in Portugal spurred largely by the conflict in Africa, where the Portuguese colonies of Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau are undermining the former Portuguese colonial empire and creating contradictions on the home front. So Portugal has a revolution in 74. The armed struggles in those African colonies hit a fever pitch. They're led by socialists and communists in those countries. That's 1976. Then in 1977, Mengistu and the left wing of the Ethiopian revolution take power in Addis Ababa and proclaim Ethiopia now to be a communist country or a government with a communist aspiration. At the same time, then we have the next year, the Afghan socialist government comes into office. That's 1978. In 1979, the linchpin of U.S. power in the Middle East outside of Israel, the Shah of Iran, is toppled by a people's revolution right next door to Afghanistan. And the Americans lose their ability to control events in Iran. Then in the summer of 1979, the Sandinistas take power in Nicaragua as a consequence of a long standing national war of liberation and a civil war against Somoza, the dictator imposed on the people of Nicaragua by the United States. So that's the context. So America seems to be in decline. The socialist movements are rising. And now it's in parts of the world where the socialist perspective, the socialist revolution, even two decades earlier would have seemed like the music of a very, very, very distant future, but now it's all happening. So America is also intervening because there's a sense of panic that, you know, the communists are winning, the American empire is in rapid decline, and that becomes very significant in terms of U.S. intervention, where in a way the U.S. decides to draw the line, in a way, in Afghanistan. That's right. And I think that it's also important to understand the sort of increased U.S. involvement in Afghanistan alongside the response by the Reagan administration, this entrance into a new neoliberal era in the 1980s in response to the debt crisis in the 1970s, where you see the reassertion of certain imperialist interests in the world and sort of the eventual defeat of a lot of these movements that you've described, which take place in the decade prior that in many ways, there is an entire complex political economy around what was happening in Afghanistan that needs to be more closely attended to when we think about the so-called current quagmire in Afghanistan. Let's talk about how the U.S. actually intervened. The Soviets came in, they were fighting alongside the Afghan government, army, 
the Mujahideen, so-called, were not succeeding. In fact, they were losing the war. But in the mid-1980s, the U.S. started sending Stinger missiles to the Afghan guerrillas. Now, I'm looking at a, this is a CIA tweet from this week. The Stinger missiles supplied by the United States gave Afghan guerrillas, generally known as the Mujahideen, the ability to destroy the dreaded MI-24D helicopter gunships deployed by the Soviets to enforce their control over Afghanistan. Now, the funny thing about this tweet, so Rob, is that the Stinger missiles were sent to the military forces led by Osama bin Laden. Those Stinger missiles ended up, by the way, in many, many other places. But here you have, again, for people to understand the irony of the situation in a way, that the U.S. declares the war on terror as its dominant orientation for U.S. military and foreign policy following the September 11th attacks. It says that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda are responsible that the U.S. is going to war against them to defeat them, that they constitute a global threat. But just 15 years before September 11th, 2001, it's the U.S. military and the CIA sending these Stinger missiles to the same forces in Afghanistan because they're fighting against socialists. Let's just talk about how significant the Stinger missiles were in terms of the military aspect of the war and what it says politically about the U.S. orientation. Yes, I think it's one of the clear indications and clear sort of points of evidence in which we can see, as you said, this sort of turning point in the rise to power of the Mujahideen and the various factions that would then splinter from that broad movement, one of which would become the Taliban in the 1990s. And I think that there is so much left unsaid in that tweet that you've read, not only, as you pointed out, the fact that you know the, these Stinger missiles would later become representative of the arms and support, real support that the Taliban and various other forces that would then form Al-Qaeda and so on in Afghanistan, you know, it was through these provision of these arms that allowed for that to take place and those groups to emerge. But that also by, you know, focusing so singularly on these Stinger missiles, there's also sort of an obfuscation of everything that took place prior to that with regards to U.S. engagement in covert operations in Afghanistan. Prior to even the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, that you had these sort of covert operations to support what would become the Mujahideen, particularly in the border regions of Pakistan, bordering Afghanistan. And of course, these were also camps that would provide the radicalization, this sort of fundamentalist Islamic ideology to these ultra-reactionary fighters, so-called freedom fighters. You know, these camps were also directly supported by the then military dictator, President Ziaul Haq in Pakistan, much to the benefit of U.S. interests in the region. I'm looking at a media story about what the U.S. thinking was in the mid-80s. This is Business Insider. Jack Devine, who took over the CIA's Afghan task force around that time, is discussing in an interview with Business Insider about what the CIA's thinking was at the time of the sending of the Stinger missiles. Here it is, quote, In 1985, there was a prevailing sentiment if you would look at the press and if you were in officialdom, if you walked around Washington and talked to people in the defense, intelligence, and executive branch in general, 
the view was that we were at a stalemate with them, meaning we, the CIA, working with the Mujahideen as their foot soldiers, were at a stalemate with the Soviet-backed Afghan socialist government. Quote, there was a sentiment growing, quote, how long are we just going to bleed the Russians, said Devine, whose 32-year CIA career included stints as acting director and associate director of operations. More critical observers interpreted the U.S. dictate as, quote, bleed the Russians to the last Afghan, close quote. And then the Reagan administration, the Reagan White House, decided that, quote, bleeding the Russians, which really meant bleeding the Afghans, wasn't adequate, that the U.S. was going to try to change the outcome of the war by sending really advanced anti-aircraft missile technology to the Mujahideen, again, led by and financed by their spokesperson, Osama bin Laden. And then it was decided, according to Devine, that Reagan decided the U.S. was going to make, quote, one more big push, which, quote, I was surprised that the Russians, to the best of my knowledge, never picked up on. Now, what's interesting, so Rob, is that This happens in 1985-86. Reagan is also involved in new relations with the Soviets. He's flattering Gorbachev. He's welcoming detente and glasnost, the new policies of opening up right-wingers like Reagan and his cohort, Margaret Thatcher, in the UK are really pouring on the flattery to Gorbachev, saying, yeah, he's the man we can work with. They're talking about that Soviet leader, unlike the way they talked about any Soviet leader in a long time. I mean, maybe there was a brief honeymoon period in 1941 when the U.S. and Britain were in a military alliance with the Soviet Union, then led by Stalin. That gave way pretty quickly during the Cold War when anti-Stalinism was synonymous with anti-Sovietism and all of the Soviet leaders were consistently demonized. But the U.S. and Thatcher and the U.K., they were liking Gorbachev. I'm wondering what your view is in terms of Soviet calculations at that time. The U.S. escalates the military technology sent to the Mujahideen to hit at Soviet helicopters. And at the same time, the U.S. is sort of, you know, basically offering carrots to Gorbachev saying, look, let's open up. Let's have new agreements. Let's have a new detente after having five years of maximum pressure on the Soviet Union during which time the U.S. had put intermediate-range missiles all around the Soviet Union and Europe, missiles that had a flight time of six minutes to their Soviet targets, something really menacing to the Soviet Union. But now it was about detente and reconciliation and rapprochement. I'm wondering what you think in terms of the calculations made on Gorbachev's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. Well, I think it's a really important point to examine because by that point in the 20th century, one of the principal supporters of many national liberation struggles, anti-colonial struggles in the world was the Soviet Union. And it was during this time of reforms under Gorbachev where you see the real sort of withdrawal by the Soviet Union from support for these struggles, anti-colonial struggles and national liberation struggles around the world, at least of which is Afghanistan. And so because of this withdrawal from Afghanistan, not only of military presence, but of also assistance and aid, you see a similar effort 
almost a desperate effort by the then final president of the what would become the Republic of Afghanistan, what would then be a transformation from the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan to the Republic of Afghanistan under Dr. Najibullah, the final president of this government. There was a real effort knowing that there was a Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, again, of assistance and aid, in addition to military presence, that Dr. Najibullah started to seek reconciliation with various majority factions in the country, and to no avail, effectively. For many years, he would have roundtable discussions, would have these lines of communication with uh, certain Mujahideen fighters to try and to build some sort of semblance of national unity at the time that had in a lot of ways foregone any of these sort of progressive socialist changes that we saw earlier during the time of the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. And of course, this is sort of a tragic story that is the story of Dr. Najibullah and that for four years, as the conditions in Afghanistan worsened, as various Mujahideen factions increased their control over various areas and regions of the country, that Dr. Najibullah fled to the UN compound in Kabul, lived there for a few years as a refugee, as a sort of someone who was seeking political asylum in the UN compound. By the time the Mujahideen had come to Kabul and effectively destroyed it to such an extent that Kabul was, you know, this once vibrant city, growing city was reduced to rubble. By the time the Mujahideen came to Kabul, Dr. Najibullah would eventually be dragged out of the UN compound and killed, his body publicly displayed in the streets. By the Taliban, when the Taliban comes to power. That's right. So the history of withdrawal beginning with the time of Gorbachev and the Soviet Union is one that spells a great deal of tragedy for the fledgling socialist government in Afghanistan. And I think it's important to note that, again, just as we saw sort of a withdrawal from support in Afghanistan, we see similar withdrawal from similar struggles and socialist movements around the world. Indeed. I mean, this begins the era of counter-revolution, really. And you can see what happens in Afghanistan. Also, the Soviets' primary ally in the Middle East really had been Iraq. The Gorbachev does not come to the defense of the Iraqi government as the U.S. prepares to target it in 1990 and basically allows the United States to destroy or almost destroy Iraq with a bombing that begins in January 1991, along with the sanctions and then the short ground war. So you have Afghanistan, you have Iraq, also big changes in Ethiopia, major changes continue to devolve the situation in Somalia. The Sandinistas lose power in Nicaragua. It's at that time that the United States enters into negotiations to formally end the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela and to end its support for apartheid in South Africa with the idea now that the basically communist-led movement in South Africa, as the world counter-revolution was sort of succeeding elsewhere, would come to political power and lead through negotiations to black majority rule, but it would not upset. It would not lead to the socialist revolution against the capitalist system and capitalist economy in South Africa. All of that was premised on the changed international environment where the Soviet Union is withdrawing support for national liberation movements. 
uh, withdraw support from the governments in Eastern Europe, which are toppled by counter-revolutions, pro-capitalist counter-revolutions that lead to Eastern and Central Europe being integrated into NATO. So you can see that as the Soviet Union's policy changes, as the Soviet Union weakens, as the socialist camp implodes, as the Soviet Union also implodes, as American unipolar power then for the first time since the end of World War II is able to assert itself, it has the impact in Afghanistan and everywhere of a sharp shift to the right, a retreat from the left. Because the left in these different countries, especially emerging countries, countries that were emerging from feudalism or semi-feudalism or colonialism, they required support internationally. They could not overcome the forces of feudalism and capitalism backed by American and Western imperialism without international aid and solidarity. And that was the thing that was being withdrawn. So when we sort of sum up the end of this period and finally the collapse or the end of the socialist government and finally the terrible, as you said, terrible images of the Taliban finally coming to power in the 1990s, taking the left, taking the communists, taking the former government out and literally lynching them, mutilating their bodies and lynching them from the lampposts in Kabul. That's the Afghan sort of version of this counter-revolutionary thrust that's going on all around the world at that time. And again, this is just you know not too long before September 11, 2001, where the United States then in response to the Al-Qaeda-led or sponsored terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, shifts its policy and makes the war against the same forces it's been supporting for the past 25 years the principal pretext or rationale for a new era of American militarism and imperialist intervention, including the final invasion and destruction of the Iraqi government. In our next episode, the second episode on this topic, we will focus primarily on why the U.S. actually went to war in Afghanistan in 2001, how and why it was militarily defeated, and the new strategic orientation of the Pentagon, meaning both during the Trump era and now during the Biden White House, aiming towards the creation of a government of national unity with the Taliban playing a principal or decisive role. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.